Good morning. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here at First Free, and I'm thrilled this morning to talk to you on the topic of why love. From the surface, this seems like a slam-dunk topic, easy to get everybody in church on board with, why they should love. After all, God is defined as love. So what do you say we just read John 3.16, call the band back up, and we can get out here early and get lunch before all the other churches let out. While this is very much a slam dunk topic, it's easy to get everyone in church on board, but we as a church oftentimes take Jesus' command to love God and to love others and attempt to add more to it. After all, it can't be that simple, but the reality is it is that simple. And yet those two simple commands carry so much weight and so much depth because of the type of living and sacrifice that they call us to. So before we begin, I think it's necessary that we define what is love. So here we are. What is love? So for some of you, the image of these guys bouncing their heads to a techno beat is what comes to mind. And for that, the 1990s asks for your forgiveness. But let's move on from that and see what some young kids have responded to when asked, what is love? So here's one. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your French fries without making them give you any of theirs. That's true love. Love is what makes you smile when you're tired. Are you guys smiling? (laughs) Love is when mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. (laughs) True. If you want to learn to love better, you should start with a friend you hate. Wow. And love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt and then he wears it every day. I've been guilty of that one. Love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. My mommy loves me more than anybody. You don't see anyone. Love is when mommy gives daddy the best piece of chicken. True story. You really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot because people forget. So true. And so as we define this further, people say that love is a decision. They may say it is a verb. They may say it's a feeling or a chemical reaction. And I would say, yes, all of those things are true. And yet it is so much more. It is a decision. It is a requirement of following Jesus. And it is a requirement of discipleship. Before the foundation of the world, God loved. John mentioned a couple weeks ago when we talked about why community, that the idea of community existed long before time in the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son. And there was love before time even began. God concluded that love would last forever in 1 Corinthians 13. It's a gift accessible to all. 
Love is unusual. It's greater than our talents, possesses the capacity to forgive, influence culture, to be disciplined and committed. So love is not just a feeling. It's not a hashtag. Instead, love is power and love is influential. And there are four unique forms of love that are found in the Bible, and they are communicated through four Greek words. Eros, storge, phileia, and agape. And we'll explore these different types of love characterized by romantic love, family love, brotherly love, and God's divine love. Those distinctions, however, haven't always been recognized by other scholars and theologians, and some actually believe that there is some substantial overlap between these distinctions. But as we look further, we'll discover what love really means and how to follow Jesus' command to love one another. So I'm going to briefly describe these four types of love discussed in the Bible, and some of you may have never heard of these different types. Some of you may already know them very well, and for those of you that may already know them, I would ask that you pay close attention, because you may just hear something that you haven't heard before. So first, with Eros, Eros love expresses romantic attraction. It's also the name of the mythological Greek god of love, physical attraction, and physical love. And love has many meanings in English, and these four words describe them precisely. For example, I can say that I love sushi. I can say that I love my wife. That is the same word, but it does not mean the same thing. I love my wife way more than I love sushi. There's a different kind of intensity around that. And although eros does not necessarily appear in the New Testament, this Greek term for erotic love is portrayed in the Old Testament book, The Song of Solomon. And I find it interesting that most Jewish boys are not allowed to read this book until they get much older. The second form of love is storge. Storge is family love, the bond among fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, sisters, and brothers. Strong's lexicon defines storge as cherishing one's kindred, especially parents or children. The mutual love of parents and children and wives and and husbands, loving affection, prone to love, loving tenderly, chiefly of a reciprocal tenderness. So there's a lot of reciprocity in storge love. I love you, therefore you love me. Phileia means close friendship or brotherly love in Greek, and it is one of the strongest feelings of attraction in the Bible. It talks about it being the opposite is phobia or fear. It is the most general form found in the Bible, and it encompasses a love for fellow humans, care, respect, and compassion for people in need. It's a benevolent, kindly love. Phileia and other forms of of the Greek noun are found throughout the New Testament, and Christians are frequently exhorted to love their fellow Christians. Philadelphia, brotherly love, appears a handful of times. In Philea, friendship appears once in James. And finally, that leads us to agape. Agape love is the best. It is selfless. It is sacrificial. It is unconditional love. It is the highest of the four types of love 
in the Bible. And the Greek word agape and its variations are found throughout the New Testament. And it perfectly describes the kind of love that Jesus Christ had for his Father and that he has for his followers. It's the term that defines God's immeasurable, incomparable love for humankind. It is his ongoing, outgoing, self-sacrificing concern for lost and fallen people. God gives this love without condition, unreserved, and to those who don't deserve it and are inferior to himself. Anders Nygren, who was a Swedish theologian, wrote extensively regarding agape love and eros love, and he wrote this. He says, agape love is unmotivated in the sense that it is not contingent on any value or worth in the object of love. It is spontaneous and heedless, for it does not determine beforehand whether love will be effective or appropriate in any particular case. Agape love is unmotivated. It doesn't depend on your value or worth. And a very simple way to summarize agape is God's divine love. One really important aspect of agape love is it extends beyond emotions. It extends beyond feeling. Agape love expressed through actions. You can follow along on our screens or you can use uh, the Uversion app under events. You can locate First Free or you can go to efree.org slash Bible for more. But this next piece of scripture we're going to read is the all-encompassing love of God for the entire human race for it caused him to send his son Jesus Christ. So let's read John three sixteen. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is love that has action. And Jesus told his followers to love one another in the same way, the same sacrificial way that he loved them. And this command was new because it demanded this new kind of love, a love like his own, agape love. So what would be the outcome of this kind of love was that people would be able to recognize them as Jesus' disciples because of their mutual love. And John 13, 34 reads this. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. This is huge. So as we talk about these different types of love, it's important for us to distinguish what it is and what it is not. Love is bigger than you are. It is bigger than I am. You can invite love, but you cannot dictate how. You cannot dictate when or where love expresses itself. You can even find yourself loving people you don't like at all. Love does not come with conditions or stipulations. Love radiates independently of our fears and our desires. Love is inherently free. It cannot be bought. It cannot be sold. It cannot be traded. You cannot make someone love you, nor can you prevent it, not for any amount of money. Love cannot be imprisoned. Love 
is not a substance, a commodity, or even a marketable power source. It has no territory. It has no boundaries, no quantifiable mass or energy output. And one can buy loyalty, you can buy companionship, you can buy attention, and maybe even perhaps compassion. But love itself cannot be bought. Love cannot be turned on as a reward. It cannot be turned off as a punishment. Only something else pretending to be love can be used as a lure or as a hook for bait and switch. Imitated, insinuated. But the real deal can never be delivered if it doesn't spring freely from the heart. And this doesn't mean that love allows destructive and abusive behaviors to go unchecked because love speaks out for justice. It protests when harm is being done. Love points out the consequences of hurting oneself or others. Love allows room for frustration. It allows room for grief. It allows room for pain to be expressed and released. But love does not threaten to withhold itself if it doesn't get what it wants. Love cares what becomes of you. You know, we're in the summertime, and summertime is wedding season, right? And the famous love chapter of 1 Corinthians is often used in weddings. And I want us to read this chapter, but I want us to read this scripture with a little slower cadence and with a lot more deliberation. So I invite you to read with me. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. And it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, those partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God knows me completely. 
Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So how do we love? We've talked about what it is. We've talked about what it is not. And if we look at how we love, first and foremost, we don't make demands. We can't be the ones that make demands. Love does not demand its own way. Love does not require the other person to change before it is given. God's love does the work within us to change our hearts to break for what breaks his, and to love others. Second, love seeks out relationship. We have to seek out relationship. Love invites into community. Through love, we can learn and earn relationship. Relationship invites a whole other world that provides for accountability and with grace and respect. Because true discipleship, in and of itself, does not control the transformation of other people. True discipleship has to involve relationship first. If our one and only interaction with an individual is to describe an action of theirs as sin, it makes for an awkward end to a conversation that never started in the first place. And when we make placing judgment on others in response to our dogma, in response to our doctrine, in response to our convictions and preferences greater than actually loving them, we plant a flag. And when we plant a flag, we become obliged to defend a position. You see, author Bob Goff in his book, Everybody Always, states this, when we make ourselves the hall monitor of other people's behavior, we risk having approval become more important than Jesus' love. It's a very dangerous place to be. And I would say, or I would ask, how many of us unequivocally know and believe that we are right about something? Who likes being right? I I like being right. If you're not raising your hand, then you like being wrong. I like being right. And I know unequivocally, two plus two equals four every time. Regardless of what new math says or how we get there, two plus two equals four every single time. I don't know about you, but for me, being right is important. This is hard for me. And sometimes being right can be more important than loving the person that I know is wrong. This does not call us to compromise our beliefs. But we cannot let being right about God We cannot let being right about the sacrifice and the redemption that Jesus offers get in the way of actually loving the people that he sent his son to die for so they can experience and see that redemption for themselves. The beauty is that Jesus offers redemption, not just for eternity. For a lot of us, that may seem like that's a long way away. For some of us, it may seem like that's right around the corner, but Jesus also offers redemption for our right here and our right now lives. Because if we were to take eternal salvation as a result of our belief in Jesus Christ off the table, I would ask this question. Is living the way that Jesus intended still worth it? Are we better off right here and right now? Is there a discernible difference in our lives that draws people to Jesus 
because of the way we love and because of the way that we live. You see, the world has a very negative view of Christians. And in a recent Barna research study, Barna does uh, a ton of research for Christian organizations to provide data for us to make the right kind of decisions that we need to. And out of Barna, over 53% of people from all faith backgrounds, and this is including Christianity, 53% have a negative view of Christianity. We are viewed as either a group of finger-pointing scoffers or bullhorn-wielding protesters. 23% of faith backgrounds have an ambivalent or neutral view of Christians and Christianity. And if you're following along with the math, finally, only 24% have an overtly positive view of Christians as helpful and loving people. They, the world, they say we're a bunch of hypocrites, that we are known more for what we are against than what we are for. And honestly, we shouldn't say everyone is invited if we're going to act like they're not welcome when they come. And when we fail at loving others the way Jesus invited, the world notices. But even greater, when we love people well, others can't help but notice this agape love. You know, some of you may remember recently the news of fashion designer Kate Spade taking her own life, as well as news of acclaimed chef and travel host TV personality Anthony Bourdain taking his own life. These were people who seemingly had it all, and yet they felt despair strong enough to end their lives. People walk into our church every Sunday. Every Sunday. They are fighting a battle, and they are carrying burdens. And some may even be confronted by the church, telling them that they need to change. But we shouldn't be the ones that judge. We don't know what someone has gone through. People are hurting and people are dying. We don't have time for judgment and shame. We need love, and God loves everyone, and so should we. Billy Graham is quoted as saying, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. You see, we do have a role in this. A lot of times we get it mixed up and we feel like it's our job to convict and our job to judge and we'll leave the loving to other people or to God. But the reality is we are called to love. And in that, how freeing is it to know when we ask the question, why do we love? How freeing is it to know that it doesn't all rest on our shoulders? If it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, my job to love, It doesn't rest on our shoulders, but how reassuring it is to know that we have a role in God's story, to love others around us in a way that they cannot help but see Jesus and be drawn to him. As we shared before, God loved us first, therefore we love God and we love others as he loved us. And I'll say this, we have value because we are loved. We aren't loved because we have value. Let me say that again, because this is important. We have value because we are loved. We aren't loved because we have value by God. Because when we realize that we were created as an expression of love and community that existed before time in the Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
we realize that we weren't created because God was lonely. We weren't created because God just felt like he needed a, a group of people to worship him. We were created as an expression of the very love that was existent before time even began. And when you realize that, God does not need us. However, he wants us. And he wants us to join him in his story. That's freeing. And so I want you to be aware of opportunities already present in our lives to love others well. We don't always have to seek these opportunities out. We can love our spouse better. We can love our kids better. We can love our parents better. We can love our coworkers better. Love that difficult person a little better. Maybe even love that person that has done you wrong. Choose this week to intentionally make space and create some margin to love people better by doing one of these following suggestions. And I would say, fellow introverts, hang with me here. It's a little scary, but I promise we'll come out the other end. Okay. There's some space to write these down on the back of your bulletin or in the YouVersion app, and I would encourage you to do so. First, I would say love the person right in front of you. There is so much pain and there is so much loneliness in the world, you can be pretty sure that the person sitting right next to you, right in front of you, right behind you, the person you pass in the hall or the checker at the grocery store could use a kind word. They could use a smile or a helping hand. Get off your cell phone. Talk to them. Get to know them. Ask them how their day is going and mean it. Remember their name. Second, you could take food to your neighbors. Nothing fancy, a plate of cookies or something simple. But when you give it to them, don't just drop it in their arms and run away. (laughs) Stand and talk for a bit if they seem to want that. But don't invite yourself in and don't invite them to church just yet. Be a friend. Third, you could watch the children of a single parent so they can go shopping alone or just even have some time to themselves. How precious would that be? Next, be present. So when you take your kids to activities or you find yourself in different places, don't just retreat to your car and listen to the radio or text on your cell phone. Stick around and talk with other parents. Talk with other people who are there. And lastly, you can feed the hungry. I mean, buy food for someone in need on the street and then sit and talk with them for a while while they eat if they don't mind. Give them a hug if it's not too scary for them. You know, we had the opportunity. Um, we, were, we were at an event downtown, and we were leaving this place, and we happened to have some extra food with us. And we were approached by a homeless man who was just asking for some money for food. And while I didn't have any cash on me, I had a whole plate of amazing food that we were able to hand this guy and, and be able to let him enjoy a meal. And you could just see the look on his face that someone, someone actually stopped to care, not only just would give me the money, but would actually give me food. And there's a story I like to share um, about my wife, and it's not one that she knows that I was going to share this morning. But when we lived in Florida, there was a, there was a gentleman, who was a homeless man by the name of Willie that used to walk up and down State Road 13 in Jacksonville. And this guy... And you could tell, he, he had a hard life. He shuffled his feet everywhere he went. And he was starving. 
and he needed somebody to care for him. And my wife intentionally, every time she saw Willie, she'd pull the car over, she'd get him a bite to eat, she'd sit with him, she would talk to him how his day was going, offer him a bus ticket to get him to the city rescue mission. That's the kind of love that people need to see. And so during the time of the Last Supper, and before Jesus' betrayal, before his crucifixion, he washed his disciples' feet. He took his robe off. He placed a towel around his waist. He surrendered his position as their rabbi and teacher to serve them. It was surrender of his status. And as he went through this process, he shared with them later that they, meaning the world, would know we are Christians by our love. Not by our doctrine, not by our convictions, not by our preferences, not even by our dogma, but by our love. And if we love like Jesus, people will see Jesus first in us. Not our doctrine, not our convictions, not our preferences, not our social stance, not my political view, not my ethnicity, not my race, not my age, not even my dogma. They will see Jesus first. And when we do this, God is honored. God is glorified because people are pointed to the only one who can give us the strength, the wisdom, the courage, and the ability to love like he does. And when people encounter Jesus, there is an opportunity for lives to be transformed and eternal destinations to be changed. And who knows, the life that is transformed may just be your own. In a minute, we're going to wrap up and be inviting our worship team to come forward. And after we sing, our prayer team is going to be available for anyone who would like to pray or talk with someone. And finally, I have a disclaimer. I am like a moth to a flame. I mess up all the time. And we are all sinners. And by definition, sinners can't not sin. So the idea of requiring others to stop sinning in order to warrant respect and worthiness enough to treat them like God's beloved is an extremely flawed evangelistic approach. You see, we must, we must be a place where people who are far from God can feel as though they belong, even when they do not yet believe. We must. It is my imperative. It is our imperative. It is your imperative. Because we are all called to be door holders of God's house. So be intentional this week about how you can love those around you. Whether it's loving the person right in front of you, right next to you, right behind you. Whether it's being present. Whether it's watching the children of a single parent. Whether it's feeding the hungry. There's so many ways that we can do this. Because Jesus said the world would know we are his by how we loved people. Don't think that we have to add more to this command because we don't. 
The answer is this. Love God and love others. Trust God with the outcome. Pray with me. Dear God, we are so grateful that your love lasts beyond all things. It is something that never ends and never fails and greater still. Nothing can separate us from that love. God, we are commanded to show the love for others in the same way that Jesus loved us and it is through showing this love that he says the world will know we are his disciples. He calls us to love God and love others. It is so simple and yet it is so hard. Help us to love you, God, the way you require and help us to love others the way Jesus did so sacrificially. May it be life transforming for us and for those that we love so much so that Jesus, you said the world would know it and it will change everything. That your love never fails, your love never gives up, it never runs out and that's a truth that we can hold on to forever.